as you can imagine, my mind has been racing uh, as I approached this Sunday. Uh, how do you adequately draw together 26 years of ministry? And what words can I share in the final moments that we have together as pastor and people? My wife had to remind me this morning that uh, probably the words of the last 26 years carry a little more weight than the words of today. And I'm hoping that's true. Just a few comments before we open the text. Uh, First of all, thank you. Uh, Thank you for allowing us to be a part of this church family. Um, Thank you for letting me serve as your pastor. Being a part of a revitalization effort in this local church has been one of the greatest honors of my life. Uh, Thank you for caring for our family so well. Uh, Thank you for being sheep who are willing to be led. You were willing to consider change, and there were a lot of them down through the years. Name changes and church polity changes and changes to two services and relocation and the taking on of debt, which the church had never done before. Uh, Even when you disagreed with my leadership, you responded with civility and grace. You've allowed our children to see the church at its best, and that is a gift. I would be remiss if I did not thank God for the gift of a godly wife who has been my partner in ministry for these 26 years. Uh, You all know without me telling you that I could not have done it without her. She has been a consistent source of encouragement and wisdom, and I am grateful to God for her. And I thank God for the elders that I've served with through the years, but especially for Craig and Kathy. Uh, They've labored by my side for 22 years. I could not have chosen a more loyal, a more genuine ministry colleague, and I can't imagine having done ministry alone. I just can't imagine it. I want to encourage you Uh, by way of exhortation, to love and serve Christ's church. Sherry and I have invested the prime years of our lives. Uh, Maybe Paul uses the language of pouring out like a drink offering, right? We've invested the prime years of our lives in building Christ's church. It has not always been easy. There were lean years and contentious meetings and sleepless nights and stress, and it was worth every moment. The church, Christ's church, is worth it. And it has brought us great joy and satisfaction. I've been considering uh, this little verse here recently. I think we have this here, Andrew. There we go. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. These are the words of Jesus, and it seems to be a contradiction here in this text. We think if we're going to experience rest, uh, we should stop all our activity and lay on a beach all day and uh, do nothing. This is how we rest. But Jesus says, no, those who are weary and heavy laden, come and take my yoke upon you. Enter into my work. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We will only find 
rest when we step into Jesus' yoke and join him in his work, and his work is the church. He is building his church. And so I plead with you to love and serve Christ's church. I also appeal to you to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have enjoyed a sweet season of unity and health in this local congregation, and that's going to take work. And maybe in some ways it's going to take even more work in the days to come. Uh, Many churches uh, struggle after having a long-term pastor. And the reality is that after 26 years, the church has undoubtedly taken on many of my characteristics. And I just simply tell you that change is coming. And it's a good thing. But it's going to test you. And you're going to have to make sure that you continue to work to maintain the unity of the church. I'm confident that FHBC will flourish through this season in part because of the strong team of elders and deacons. I look forward to hearing of your continued growth and effectiveness in the gospel. Uh, This quote caught my attention. Someone passed it along to me in the last couple of weeks. Okay, you're going to have to advance it, I think. There we go. This is from Augustus Strong, the theologian, That minister is most successful who gets the whole body to move and who renders the church independent of himself. The test of his work is not while he is with them, but after he leaves them. This is what has been sobering for me, right? The days to come are going to tell how good of a pastor I was. He goes on to say, then it can be seen After the pastor leaves, whether he has taught them to follow him or to follow Christ, whether he has led them to the formation of habits of independent Christian activity, or whether he has made them passively dependent upon himself. My prayer is that you are following not me, but Christ. And uh, we look forward to hearing of all that God does in the days to come. Our text this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 12, and I'd invite you to join me there if you have a copy of God's Word in print or digital form, Hebrews chapter 11, rather, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. I had asked Abby if I could share this little story about her. Abby's one of my daughters, and when she was learning to drive, she was extremely conscientious. I mean, she was focused. She was laser-focused on the bumper of the car in front of her. I mean, she was not going to avert her eyes. And you can imagine that uh, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? If you've uh, been driving for any length of time, you know the importance of maintaining a sense of your surroundings, of checking your rearview mirror, of checking that blind spot periodically, just being aware of what's going on, of looking further down the road, of seeing brake lights of you know, cars, 10 cars ahead. Uh, if you're going to be able to anticipate everything that might come your way while you're driving. So Abby needed 
perspective. She needed to take a long-term, big-picture type of view. And that's what I want to talk about here this morning. It's what this text uh, challenges us with this morning. Hebrews eleven twenty-two. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph's words here in this text take on particular significance because he spoke them at the end of his life or when his end was near or when he was about to die. There's a certain heaviness or gravitas to the text because of when it was spoken on the verge of death. A person's final words always are pointed and weighty. When you encounter death, you see things differently. You see things more clearly. All the mental clutter and trivial distractions are stripped away and the ultimate issues of life come into very sharp focus. Uh, By the way, you don't have to be on your deathbed to think carefully and soberly about such things. Here in Ecclesiastes we read, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So before you get to the end of your life, think about your Creator. Think about the purpose of life. Think about where you are going and what you are investing your life into. You've heard me quote this passage on many different occasions, Ecclesiastes 7. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time Should you go to a funeral or a festival? Festivals are more fun, but funerals are more valuable. Much of life involves the daily grind, regular rhythms and patterns, but there are moments in our lives when we are made to stand back and consider the big picture. It could be your first day at a new school, or maybe your last day of high school or college. It could be the time you get cut from the team. It could be that moment when you bring that baby home from the hospital and you realize that he or she is now your responsibility. It could be that car accident where your life flashed before your eyes. It could be an estranged relationship with a son or a daughter, a failed business venture, a cancer diagnosis, a divorce. What am I doing? Where am I going? Sherry and I have certainly found ourselves in one of those moments. When we received a call from Grace a number of months ago, it forced us to look further down the road. We had enjoyed 26 years of ministry in a church we love with people we consider family. And we were confronted with how we would spend the next season of our ministry. 
We are forced to confront our mortality. We have a limited allotment of time. And we'll one day give an account to our Creator for how we steward what He has given us. Those are uncomfortable moments. I can tell you, unsettling moments. But anything that causes us to take the long view is inherently valuable. These are important things to think about, whether you're 51 or 81 or 21. (laughs) And the text here in Hebrews 11 encourages us to take the long view. Now, the danger in considering a, a small portion of Scripture like this, one verse is that we could lose sight of the context. So as we think about Hebrews eleven twenty two and Joseph and his instructions here regarding his bones, let's remember what's happening here. The author in Hebrews is trying to highlight Joseph and a number of other men and women who lived by faith. And the author does not share all of these things merely as a matter of historical record. He wants to inspire us and call us to live by faith as well. Chapter 12, if you still have the text open before you, chapter 12 is really the payoff, the call to response. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God so as we as we run our own race we're encouraged primarily of course to look to Jesus right and Jesus here takes the long view right who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He kept his eyes fixed on the prize, on the final outcome. But in addition to Jesus as our primary example, there's this great cloud of witnesses. There's a throng of other people there in view. And that includes Joseph. These are individuals who have gone before, who have lived by faith, and they now stand as witnesses. They, they speak to us. They urge us on. And they show us the way. They show us how to take the long view. So again, Joseph's choices here at the end of his life are instructive for us. And I think as I consider Joseph here, he forces us to ask some key questions. So that's going to be our brief outline this morning. I'm going to pose three questions to you that help us to take the long view. And here's the first one. Are you focused on the right destination? Are you focused on the right destination? Joseph and the other descendants of Abraham found themselves in Egypt. That's where Joseph speaks these words. As Joseph comes to the end of his life, he actually seems to be in a pretty good place. He has power. He had been exalted to second in command in Egypt. Most powerful nation in the world. He has fame. 
undoubtedly held in high esteem by the Egyptians because he had saved the country from famine. You remember how he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and and told Pharaoh that a great famine was coming, a seven-year famine, and Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of uh, the grain supplies, and and, and Joseph uh, saved the country. (laughs) He was a national hero. So he was dearly loved there in Egypt. And of course, he has wealth and a life of ease. He had been given a wife of undoubtedly great beauty and status. But Joseph is clearly fixated on something better that was still in the future. Joseph talked with his children. According to Hebrews 11.22, Joseph talked with his children about the exodus. About the day when they would leave Egypt. Joseph knew where he was going. He had this confident hope in view. And it wasn't just wishful thinking. God had made promises to his forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that God would make them into a great nation. Joseph knew where he was coming, and he understood that the things of this world, even the wealth and pleasure of Egypt, would never fully satisfy. I don't know if you've uh, watched this documentary about Alex Hanold, entitled Free Solo. Uh, Alex Hanold was a legendary, is a legendary climber, fixated for many years, on scaling El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, nearly 3,000 feet from the base to the summit and nearly a sheer cliff. And Alex Hanold wanted to do it free solo, without ropes or other safety equipment. And the pursuit dominated his life. He could not rest. Created some interesting tension with his girlfriend at the time, right? But there's this really sad note at the end. Spoiler alert, he does it. And you think, okay, now he can kind of go on with his life. He's he's accomplished this. But no, he begins to think about what the next challenge is. We've talked uh, before about Tom Brady. After winning three Super Bowl rings, he was interviewed, and he said this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I love playing football, and I love being quarterback for this team, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. I mean, he has has everything, and it's come to realize that it doesn't fully satisfy. Joseph here was fixated on the ultimate destination. I ask you, what, what are you chasing this morning? Where are you finding your confidence or looking for your confidence and your security? Where does your hope lie? What destination are you focused on? 
Now, when Joseph spoke of the Exodus here, he was referencing the historical event that we know about, right, of the Hebrew slaves being brought out of Egypt 400 years after Joseph. The Passover lamb was slaughtered, the blood was placed on the doorpost so that there could be atonement for sin and that the lives of the Hebrew people could be spared. God brought them out of Egypt, he parted the Red Sea, and eventually brought them to the promised land of Canaan. An amazing demonstration of God's power and love. But the exodus out of Egypt was actually intended to be a picture of another exodus, a greater exodus. For God sent his son, Jesus, to deliver us, not from the bondage of Egypt, but from the bondage of sin. Jesus came into Jerusalem there in the week of Passover as they celebrated that great exodus out of Egypt. And Jesus put himself forward as the Passover lamb who would shed his blood for the sins of the people. So Jesus accomplished true salvation, a true exodus, a true deliverance. Joseph only knew a part of what he was speaking about. Do you live with this confident hope, my friends? Have you come to know the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life that can only be found in Jesus? Are you living in light of this greater exodus? Is your life oriented around that great final destination? It's hard not to live for the moment. It's been hard for me not to view this local church as the destination. And the thought of leaving brings a deep sense of loss. But my friends, we are not home yet. We are all pilgrims on a journey waiting for the beautiful land that God has promised to us. So taking the long view means that you don't settle for some substitute that will never fully satisfy. Are you focused on the right destination? There's another question that springs from the text, and that is, how are you handling the test of prosperity? How are you handling the test of prosperity? Joseph was a man of evident faith. He demonstrated faith and trust in God when he was betrayed by his brothers, when he was sold as a slave, when he was falsely imprisoned. He demonstrated faith and trust in God when he refused to sleep with Potiphar's wife. He demonstrated faith and trust in God when he refused to exact vengeance on his treacherous brothers. It is interesting to me that none of these things are mentioned here in Hebrews. When the writer to the Hebrews talks about the life of Joseph, he talks about one particular demonstration of faith. That when Joseph came to the end of his life, he talked about the exodus, and he gave instructions regarding his bones. Why were these words at the end of his life so important? If I were to ask you about Joseph's life, you probably wouldn't mention that. You would mention many of these other things. Why were these words so important? I think in part, 
This indicates that the greatest test of Joseph's faith was not persecution, but prosperity. You see, Joseph lived to be 110 years old. He had not been in the land of Canaan since the age of 17. He lived the last 93 years of his life in Egypt. And the last 63 years of his life were lived in prosperity and ease. He enjoyed all that Egypt had to offer. Fame and wealth and education and culture and entertainment. And a good AAU basketball team for his kids. But in the midst of all of that affluence, Joseph never forgot his identity before God. This was perhaps the most remarkable expression of his faith. He never forgot that he was part of God's chosen people. He didn't get distracted. And he sent a message with his dying breath, Egypt is not our home. (laughs) Joseph cultivated this sense of identity before God. When Pharaoh asked Joseph, can you interpret my dream? Joseph said, no, but God can. I love that response. Joseph had two sons born to him there in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh, and both names communicated something about his faith. Manasseh means forget. God had made him forget all his suffering. And Ephraim means fruitful. God had made him exceedingly fruitful in the land of his suffering. So Joseph consistently interpreted the events of his life in light of God's sovereignty. And he never got distracted by the prosperity of the culture. Uh, Demas was one of Paul's missionary co-workers. And this is what we read. This is Paul's last letter. And he talks about this individual named Demas. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Uh, We know that Demas had been accompanying Paul on his missionary journeys. One of their previous stops was Thessalonica. And so something, something got into Demas's heart in Thessalonica. Probably a woman. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Uh, something got into Demas's heart in Thessalonica. It got a hold of him. And he ended up leaving Paul and going to Thessalonica. Jesus warned his own disciples about the subtle distractions in the parable of the soils. You have the the hard soil where the the seed of the gospel could not penetrate, and you have the the good soil uh, where the seed of the gospel germinated and grew and produced fruit. But in between, you have these other soils, and one of them is the weedy soil where the, the seed of the gospel took root in the heart and it grew up, but pretty soon, before it could produce fruit, it, it had become choked out. And this is how Jesus describes that soil. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. 
The weeds that choke us and keep us from bearing fruit are the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. The danger for the believer is not usually heresy or some kind of false teaching or false doctrine, but distraction. The concern is not so much heinous sin, although we must be aware of that, but subtle diversions. Success comes with additional responsibilities and temptations. God has been very good to Sherry and I. We've reflected on his goodness in these months in particular. God has been good to many of you as well. Allow you to prosper in certain ways. And certainly God has been very good to us as a church. We've enjoyed a sweet season marked by fullness, growth, unity, and abundance. Joseph forces us to ask the question, how are you doing with the test of prosperity? Taking the long view means you stay focused and persistently weed out distractions. There's a final question that surfaces out of this text, and that is, how will your current decisions impact those who come after you? You're going to take the long view. You have to think a little bit about legacy. <laughs> what is going to be the impact of my life on those who come after me? Joseph gives us a great example in this regard. Joseph leaves these instructions regarding his bones, right? And talks with his descendants, with his children and grandchildren. He talks to them about the exodus, about the time that they will leave Egypt. Joseph's father, Jacob, had left similar instructions when he died. Jacob said, don't bury me in Egypt. So when Jacob died, they all traveled to Canaan and they buried Jacob there in Canaan. But I can't help but notice that Joseph left slightly different instructions here. Joseph wanted his bones to remain in Egypt and to be taken up when the people left. The original narrative back in Genesis chapter 50 makes it clear that Joseph solemnly charged them with these instructions. So when Joseph gave these instructions, he wasn't just thinking of himself and his own burial He wanted his unburied coffin to be a constant reminder to all his descendants that Egypt was not their home. And over 400 years later, the text draws our attention to it, over 400 years later, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him when he led the people out of Egypt. It had been a powerful reminder. His coffin had been a powerful reminder that God always keeps his promises. Puritan John Owen reflected on this. Joseph did it. He gave these instructions plainly to encourage the faith of his brethren and their posterity, as unto the certainty of their future deliverance, so also to take them off from all designing to fix or plant themselves in Egypt, seeing he would not so much as have his bones remain in that land. Joseph had not just himself in view, but he had people of Israel in view. 
See, your actions have ripple effects. There's a cautionary tale in Israel's history, and that revolves around King Jeroboam. Uh, After the reigns of King Solomon and King David, the nation of Israel was divided, and Jeroboam became king in the north part of the country. And Jeroboam did some really bad things. He created some alternate places of worship there in the northern part of the country. God had said, I want you to worship me at my temple, and that was in Jerusalem. That's where sacrifices were to be offered, and Jeroboam went off the reservation, and he, for very selfish, pragmatic reasons, established these alternate places of worship in the northern part of the country. And this singular decision would have long-lasting consequences. We read about king after king after king who came after Jeroboam, who continued the pattern that Jeroboam had established. And here's kind of the summary statement here in 2 Kings 17. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. And the people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them. We tend to think of our faith in individual terms. We're an individualistic culture. But we are given a responsibility to spur one another on towards love and good works. Joseph was in a unique place of influence, wasn't he? But we all have people who are looking to us, people who are within our realm of influence. You teenagers helping in the twos and threes class, you're rock stars to those two and three-year-olds. They're looking to you. What are the generational values and patterns that have been passed down to you? And what values and patterns are you passing down to those who come after you? Taking the long view means that you consider the legacy that you are leaving behind. I started off telling you about my daughter, Abby, who, by the way, is an excellent driver. Abby had to learn to lift her eyes, to look further down the road. And so do we. So do I. Joseph is a witness to the life of faith. His life challenges our tendency to live for the moment. His life challenges us to take the long view. Are you focused on the right destination? Do you know where you're going, where you're ultimately going? How are you handling the test of prosperity? Are you staying on track, on point, in the midst of the many distractions of life? Are you keeping the main thing, the main thing? And how will your current decisions, the the current trajectory of your life, impact those who come after you? What will you be remembered for? What will your kids remember about you? 
What will the younger people in the church remember about the pattern of your life? May God help us all to live, not for the moment, but for eternity.